welcome to the Families Voices podcast. Our podcast today is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The Family Voices podcast is a series of conversations with families of young children with a developmental delay or disability. We aim to build parents' knowledge, skills and confidence in navigating early childhood services and supports. The podcast is also an opportunity for families to share their stories. This podcast series is brought to you by Early Childhood Intervention Australia, VicTAS. We're a membership-based organisation that's proudly worked alongside families, practitioners and other organisations that provide supports for young children with disability or developmental delay and their families for over 35 years. To learn more about the podcast and our organisation, please visit ekiavic.org.au. Hello, my name's Kerry Ball and I'm pleased to be joined here today by Brian Kirk. Welcome, Brian. Hello, Kiwi. How are you? Great to meet with you today. You wanted to talk with us today about the road to diagnosis and support and early intervention services. And many parents have talked about this in terms of being navigating a maze. So it's a topic of great interest to us all today. Could you start us off by talking with us a bit about your family? And I'm also interested to know why you wanted to talk about your family experiences with us. As you're talking about the maze and the journey, we made a decision a long time ago as a family that it was such a traumatic, difficult experience to, you know, from starting saying, oh, there's something wrong to getting diagnosed to actually doing something about it, that um, we thought that if we could share our story, it may help other families. So that's the primary reason we just thought it might, a um, bit of information out there, a bit of human realism may help other families uh, on their journey. Um, so that's the reason why. And as far as our family, we mum, dad, two kids, um, 17-year-old boy and a now 15-year-old girl, um, Miranda, who was diagnosed at the age of four with mitochondrial disorder, complex one. So Miranda um, has hearing loss, loss of eyesight. She's you know just a couple of shades off being clinically blind, intellectual disability, muscular problems, and a few other things as well. Yeah. So that's the result. So the mitochondrial disease uh, manifests itself in disability. Mm-hmm. And from my understanding, can affect people in, in a wide range of ways and at, at different uh, times of their life. So we might, we might dig into that a little bit, Brian. But I wonder if you could take us back to when you first started worrying about Miranda's development, because you've just told us that you didn't get a diagnosis until she was four. So can we go back to the very early days um, yeah. before that time? So um, when Miranda was born, she was very small um, and she, just, she failed to thrive. So she wasn't hitting any of those milestones. Um, we thought it was colic or, you know, just a slow delays, all that sort of stuff. But um, my wife, you know, really felt that there was something wrong. She, um, she wouldn't eat. Um, she wasn't hitting those milestones, as I said, but we kept getting a lot of feedback from people. Oh, it's okay. It's you. You're being paranoid. No, she's fine. She's only little. You know, you'll be right. Um, we realised there was something wrong. So we started the, um, 
the the journey, and it was a it was a maze. So it, we started out with a, a huge list of things, and they started saying, "Well, it's not that, it's not that, not that." She became a bit of a pinup girl at the World Children's Hospital because in this, once they realised something was wrong, they then had to find out, well, what was it? Mm-hmm. So um, she got post um, prodded, she had biopsies, a muscle biopsy, f- um, stopped it at getting a, um, a kidney biopsy because mm-hmm. uh, that was too intrusive, but we then found out that uh, her eyesight was going and her hearing was going. So these things were starting to manifest themselves. But because she didn't have a diagnosis, we couldn't we couldn't fit into anywhere. We couldn't, all we was, the journey was getting test tests and, and uh, thinking that we're a bit paranoid. And uh, big stress for my wife and, you know, she, had, she really struggled with that because she thought she was a, a failing parent and all that sort of stuff doing something wrong. And at, at four, um, a doctor, bless his cotton socks, said, I believe I'm 60% certain that Miranda has a mitochondrial disorder or disease. So it's at the cellular level where they were looking at the, um, you know, other areas that might have been something else. So with 60% assurance that it may be that, we then were able to access mainstream uh, medical. So suddenly there was a clinic at Royal Children's Hospital, the mitochondrial metabolic clinic that we could tap into. And then once we had that, was all this other stuff starting to unpack. So it was only when we got the diagnosis that we suddenly realised, we suddenly breathed a sigh of relief because it was a label and people love labels. So therefore nurses, doctors and uh, everybody else in our extended life, oh, okay, even if they didn't understand what it was, there's something wrong and there's a label to it. So getting that label, even if it was only at that time 60%, was really important. So that was, she was going at that time, um, we're trying to get him into a kitten garden um, because she had a label, then we can access funds so that she could get support in kitten garden so she could have a, you know, as close to normal life as possible. Mm. We, we might come back to that, Brian, in terms of the, the importance of getting the, the label, if you like, or a <laughs> diagnosis and how, how that led to further services and support. But I'm reflecting when I listened to you that you you talked about Miranda failing to thrive and and then your wife feeling she was failing as a parent. This must have been a terribly difficult time for quite some years uh, before you got to that diagnosis. What what made you persevere for all those years? I think it was in our mind there was enough evidence because she was failing to thrive. But again, that is just an activity. Failing to thrive could mean anything. Um, it was just that we felt, admittedly, we compared it to our first son, to our first child, who, you know, when he was born, he was 12 pounds. He had his such a big head. We, you know, made the joke about he had his own satellite system happening. Um, he was such a robust. So compared to, to him, Miranda just didn't hit those milestones and wasn't the same. So we just had a sense of it. Then little things such as, um, you know, she wouldn't eat, she was getting smaller. She put an example in one, in, at, she put on 25 grams in one year. So it fluctuated up and down, but the net result was 25 grams. So she was a small, very small baby and a small child. So there was just stuff like that we just knew. Yeah. I think this, if we didn't keep pushing, the alternative would be that we'd give up. Yeah. 
So your your perseverance was coming from a place of you knowing your girl yeah, <laughs> and needing that's... to do to do the best for her. And despite um, it sounds people friends or or others saying um, no, she's okay, she's doing fine. You you needed to almost rise above that and 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 push, knowing that yeah. you knew knew your girl. Yeah. And, and since that time, um, my wife's met with some. My wife's Croatian. And she's met with um, other ethnic groups, and some of those are even they're saying, "Well, you should hide it. Don't say anybody." So we had some. It wasn't for us. It wasn't as significant as other families. We had these cultural pressures on us about having a normal child, um, and you know, and if not normal, at least um, going through those motions that's normal. So um, I think my wife went through a bit of stages where it was denial, but then she kept coming back to something else. So she really su- she suffered more than I did um, just because of that cult, well, because of the cultural thing, because of, you know, motherhood. Yes. And um, just having to, to deal with the day-to-day. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the cultural impact is, is interesting, isn't it? Because we all come with a, a cultural background, family experiences that, that uh, contribute to the way we manage and think about these issues. Very much so, but uh, yeah, it was tough. So it was interesting um, that question about sharing the story often um, allows other people to t- share their story as well. So it's yes, really cool. yes. Well, it's generous of your family to do that, and given that you're indicating that your wife had to grapple with that, manage that in the early days, it's great that we can hear that and try and understand other other family stories and, and what we might share yeah. with it. Brian, you've talked earlier about diagnosis and that it made a difference. It was one of the reasons you needed to push and, and it helped you get funding at kindergarten. Can you talk a bit more about that, about what a difference the diagnosis did make? I think this is pre-NGIS. So, you know, under the NGIS, you don't need a diagnosis, you just need evidence something isn't right. But in those days, you had to have, it was all medical. So you needed to fit in a medical reason to get any sort of funding or support. Um, so the diagnosis helped in two ways. One, it allow, allowed us to access mainstream medical and funding and advice and support. Um, it also allowed us to identify with um, the Mitochondrial Foundation, which has support groups, um, so we can start conversations with people. And we learnt what mitochondria was about. So we started um, getting involved in that. So the diagnosis help because there are so many support groups out there, but, you know, what do you need? What, how do they fit and all that sort of stuff? So diagnosis is, uh, is a, it's like barracking for a football team. <laughs> you know, everybody has a different team, but it means that you've got a you know, membership to something. And that's a real, yeah. that was a very, it was a beneficial thing for us. Mm. I know now with NDIS, um, you don't need that diagnosis. So in our case, in the old days, it was, we needed that label to get support Yes. But nowadays, you actually don't. You just have to say there's something wrong and you can get support. And if you get support early, um, the outcome can be completely different. So yeah. um, so that's support, you know, now and then. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's uh, absolutely right that for young children entering the National Disability Insurance Scheme um, or NDIS that... Uh, if they have a developmental delay, then that's the place to 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 go and get some information and support and, and access to to services. But it sounds like getting a diagnosis of mitochondrial disease did lead to 
access to further information and understanding about Miranda's particular uh, condition um, yeah. so that you could join the, the Mido Foundation and, and, and learn and, and be part of that kind of community. Yeah, so there's 110 variations of mitochondrial disorder um, or how it manifests itself. The discovery of what exactly Miranda had took a few more years. Yeah. Um, the probably the and part of that journey allowed us to say, well, what does she need? So we worked out that she was complex one. So we were trying to force feed her food, for example, but carbohydrates to her creates poison because her body can't break it down, and that was creating her blindness and the hearing loss. So we're on a journey for a cochlear implant and when we suddenly worked out, oh, she's complex one, she's got to have saturated fats. Okay, well, how do you get that? Well, she, the only way she could do that for her was get a peg feed. So getting that intervention um, allowed, it meant that Miranda um, could eat and she yeah. she did thrive for quite, for quite a few years, still not significantly, but she went from um, being a, a high potential of not, but the, the mortality rate for kids with mitochondria is really high. But by getting that intervention, it actually um, prolonged her life. And, so the diagnosis uh, was really important in terms of then targeting uh, w- which intervention was going to be most effective. And, and in this case for Miranda, it's, it's about her medical intervention. Your experience at the moment is with the NDIS, but I want to go back again, if we can, to talk about the early days. And once you had the diagnosis and got access to uh, early intervention supports, what what was your experience of early intervention back then? It was it was really good um, in the fact that we, because both Marianne and I work, and you know, I'd love to say we didn't have to, but we have to. So it allowed us to get um, support in kindergarten. So, you know, grade three kindergarten, grade four kindergarten. We, when we made the decision that she, to take her to school, you know, we could get support for transition to, to primary school. And then when she was at school, um, the education department, we could get funding for a support person. Well, the school got support for um, an aid for her. So that allowed her to, you know, be um, part of mainstream school mm. rather than, um, you know, the, the, I, I hate to think what the opposite would have been. Mm. So getting supports allowed her to, to be mainstream, to have friends and, and do stuff. Yeah. yeah. And it also um, took the pressure off our son, who's often the, um, often misses out. Can we talk about that a bit more, Brian, um, given that you've just mentioned your son and, and, and the feeling that he might have missed out? What, what's his experience been growing up with Miranda? You'd have to ask him for that one, but I'd yeah. say that, um, it's not um, by I think by the time he was ten he could change a peg, mm-hmm. so um, peg feed. Um, um, I think it's probably made him a better kid. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Why? Why do you think that? I reflect when I was growing up, we had uh, what, what I now call vanilla ice cream. You know, if you're there was a norm of what you could. Behave, and I reflect on a lot of my mates now who've gone through mental health issues and things like that. Um, I think some of it is because when they were at school, there was an expectation that this was the mould, and if you re- deviated from that mould, there was something wrong with you, or you, you know, you didn't conform. The beauty about having kids with disability in mainstream and not pigeonholing and giving people a more worldly experience 
means that that range of types, that mould, isn't narrow. So I think it helps people in their own development because they suddenly say, oh, well, I don't have to be this. Here's a person who's, you know, disadvantaged because of disability. Gee, what I've got is so much better. So it actually helps their development as well. So, so I think for um, Hayden's point of view, it, it made him more, probably more whole. Yeah, yeah. Well, experiencing. I, I think our kids are really lucky that we're experience, they're experiencing diversity in a way, as you say, that uh, we may not have had a generation ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're absolutely right. I need to ask him to understand his experience and we'll certainly be trying to uh, talk more about siblings on the family podcast and perhaps get some siblings uh, talking with us about their experience because... Uh, it's great to hear, um, particularly around these positive impacts of being exposed to diversity, being um, you know, research is telling us about siblings having um, more caring, open attitudes that, that you're reflecting um, yeah. in talking about Hayden. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Brian, looking back now, is there anything you'd do differently when you think about those early years and your, your times with raising Miranda? I think, um, no, I can't think of anything we'd do differently because mm. it was all about for us information. With information and data, you can make decisions and we didn't have that. So that was just a piecemeal thing. I think my wife would say that she uh, wouldn't let it get to her as much. Yeah. She probably would um, swear at people more often. Well, it's really fabulous to hear that actually your reflection is you wouldn't do anything differently. You, you're comfortable with how, how you managed it all. And, and it sounds like your perseverance and pushing was um, lasting for quite some years. So uh, that, that's great to hear. In terms of other families that are li listening to this podcast, Brian, is there any advice you'd give to them in terms of those early days? Support each other, back each other, um, yeah. and don't don't worry about what other people think. Follow your gut feeling, but get evidence. You know, become an expert. You know, ask questions, and don't take um, one of the strengths my wife has is that she's very tenacious. So if a doctor would say something, she'd challenge him if she was counter to what someone else said. So that both helped our education of it, but also. Um, we probably got some better outcomes because we were socially aware or became aware of what the environment was, what we could and couldn't do. So, mm. Brian, you said get evidence. Where, where did you go about getting your evidence? How did you find this information that well, you needed? When Miranda was failing to thrive, we had a huge list of things that she may have. Um, and it was just doing her head in to try to whittle down what it was. So once she had a label and we knew that was something or at least narrowed it down, we could then do research on it. So we became um, subject matter experts on mitochondrial disorder complex one. So, um, and we found literature. So what we did when we go to school or kindergarten, we were educating them. You know, there was a book that was developed and we printed off X number of copies and we're giving it to people um, to say, well, this is what it's about. This is how it is to give them an idea on a very simplistic level, how it fits. So um, 
and then that that then gives them an understanding in their mind of Miranda's behaviour. So, for example, before she was peg-fed, she'd fall asleep just like that because her body would run out of energy and she'd just roll up go to sleep. So you had to explain to kids and to parents and teachers and everybody else that this is she just ran out of energy and ran out of time. So we became... Um, very good at taking the medical and turning it into everyday language. Yeah. Probably a, a, a good good thing. That's a beautiful tip for other families, Brian. So you you became the experts, you did your research, you became the subject matter experts, as you say, but then you translated it um, into kind of palatable information for other people. And am I right that you were sharing that with then the teachers, the people that she was spending time with, including other kids. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh-huh. so we would, um, uh, yeah, we had our thirty-second spiel for use a marketing yes. term for kids. We had a thirty-second spiel for um, for adults. And one of the things that, um, and the thirty-second spiel, which often went to five minutes, when we're talking to clinicians or therapists or doctors who didn't know anything about mitochondrial disorder complex one. So we, we became, you know, we had different spells to meet, to meet the audience for one of a better yes. way. So, yeah. And we created PowerPoints for schools and all that uh-huh. sort of stuff. So you had a range of ways of sharing the information and the information was about mitochondrial disease but also about how it impacted on Miranda? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So and gave examples. Yeah. Well, it sounds like your tenacity that you described your wife as having has served your family well. Um, it seems to me you both have enormous tenacity and you've had to push hard uh, in the early days, as you say. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure meeting with you and hearing your story. Could you please thank Miranda, the rest of your family, on our behalf uh, for sharing information and, and understanding about mitochondrial disease, but also about the impact that it's had on on all of your family. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks, Gary. Brian shared practical strategies and some really valuable insights with us. He described becoming a subject matter expert on mitochondrial disease. But as parents, Brian and Marianne were already experts about Miranda in terms of her personality, interests, abilities, her interactions with others, her routines and learning style. So they translated the medical information into everyday language and that with their own knowledge of Miranda to share with her friends, teachers and other professionals through brief descriptions, PowerPoints and written information. Families often make these into small books, sometimes called a book about me. There's a lot of nice examples of them on the internet. These ways of sharing information can be particularly helpful at times of transition, like starting childcare, kindergarten or school, or when meeting with a new teacher or therapist. For Brian and his family, a diagnosis was important. It led to targeted medical treatments, services for Miranda, and places to get further information and support. But families don't need to wait for a diagnosis to get the help they want. If you're worried about your child's development, follow your instincts, just like Brian and Mary Ann did. Talk with a professional you trust, like the maternal and child health nurse, GP, paediatrician or kindergarten teacher. 
You can also call the Early Childhood Partner of the National Disability Insurance Scheme or NDIS. These professionals can help families to access the right services at this early stage of their child's life. One of the things that was so powerful for me was hearing Brian talk about the importance of belonging or membership. He described it as like being part of a football team. This resonated with me because I see how critical a sense of belonging is for children too. Whether they're at playgroup, preschool, school, or at the local playground, feeling like they belong is fundamental to children's development and well-being. A sense of belonging allows children to develop positive relationships with others and be confident learners. Feeling good about where and with who we belong is important to us all. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Family Voices. Make sure you subscribe on your podcast app and feel free to leave a review to help us gain more of an understanding of what types of conversations are helpful to you. More information about the podcast can be found on ekiavic.org.au. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.